You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at why the American public doesn't hold a lot of faith in scientists and researchers, as well as other traditional institutions in the U.S. What could have happened to damage that trust on such a profound level? We'll also look at how the U.S. economy needed a second wind and got one from Barbie, Oppenheimer, and Taylor Swift. And then we'll explore a new trend in restaurants, laboratory kitchens, and how they can help you help the world be a better place. But we begin with the American consumer, who seems unhappy. But why? Inflation is down. Consumers are spending in spite of rising interest rates. And we could get more of a market boom with rate cuts that may be coming next year. Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell said last month, that the U.S. economy is still growing. Recent indicators suggest that economic activity has been expanding at a strong pace and well above earlier expectations. In the third quarter, real GDP is estimated to have risen an outsized annual rate of 4.9 percent, boosted by a surge in consumer spending. So where is the disconnect and why the discontent? Well, let's find out. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Connor Sen joins us now. He is the founder of Peachtree Creek Investments. And Connor, we've seen rapid job and economic growth, but the American consumer is reportedly unhappy. Where's all this coming from? Well, I think it's a puzzle we've all been trying to figure out because you would say we've added millions of jobs since the pandemic. The unemployment rate's below 4%. GDP growth has been robust. Consumer spending has recovered a lot. Like People should be happy, and they're not. And so it's a question of, well, why is that? And, you know, I I think inflation certainly in 2021 and 2022 were big factors. And even though inflation has come down a lot this year, it's fair to say, well, maybe prices are still up a lot versus two, three years ago. So they're still mad about that. And I think the fact that even though inflation has come down, interest rates have mostly risen this year. And so mortgage rates ticked up to 8% in October. And even if not everybody is buying a house or buying a car all the time, it's just annoying when consumers, American consumers in particular, can't borrow the way they like to. And so I, my, that's why I wrote this column. And I think there's reasons to think a lot of these things that have annoyed people that have persisted for two or three years could be reversing. And it'll be a good test to see if lower mortgage rates, cheap energy, and sort of consistently lower inflation are enough to turn the vibes around. Okay, that's interesting. You believe consumers would be more welcoming of a slow growth environment, not a fast growth, and that that would make them more satisfied. But it does sound, on the surface, kind of the opposite of what you might expect. And maybe there's a, a, something to be said for you know growth being too fast versus just right. And it's the kind of thing where an economist might say, well, even though your costs are up 20%, your wages are up 23%, so you're somewhat better off. But no one really thinks that way. They think, well, I earned the raise I got. And then this inflation is just something annoying I have to deal with. They don't think about the two being linked. And and so, you know, people might be happy. In the late 2010s, they were happier when wage growth was 3%, but inflation was 2 And so maybe that kind of environment in 2024 with lower interest rates could could put people in a better mood. So now you are saying that, that an economic slowdown is likely coming. So let's see how these consumers respond in a different environment. Yeah. And I think right now, I don't 
think we're going to have a recession, but growth looks to be slower. Um, job growth has come down. The unemployment rate is closer to four than in the low threes. Uh, we see inflation has certainly come down. And so let's see how people like this environment. And we saw this month that consumer confidence rose this month for the first time in four months, even though growth is slower in the fourth quarter than it was in the third. So is that the consumer reaction you've been watching for? What does all this tell you? Well, I, I think it's sort of, again, suggests that people, I mean, it's great that we got the unemployment rate back to pre-pandemic levels, but the way in which we got there still wasn't the, the best ride for people. And going forward, since I do think we are going to have slower growth and hopefully lower energy prices, I believe lower interest rates, uh, I think it's reasonable to think that um, that confidence will tick up. And that's sort of the test to see, you know, has it really been about that, that people didn't like the inflation, didn't like a lot of the pressures we've had over the past few years and a more normalized environment with cheaper energy and lower cost of credit is what they've been waiting for. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Connor Sen about consumer sentiment and what it will take to satisfy the consumer. And Connor, you just mentioned lower energy prices, lower prices at the pump, lower prices to make your home warm in these winter months. And you mentioned um, the lower cost of credit. Are there other benefits that come along with it that the consumer would be looking for? I think it will help it unfreeze in the housing market. And it's sort of the housing market. It's like, how is it doing? And I think there are a lot of ways you can, in which you could say it's really strong because inventory is still very low. Prices are very high. Um, if you're a homeowner and you locked in your mortgage rate a few years ago, you're, you're sitting pretty. But it's also very dysfunctional. We have the lowest existing home sales in 20 or 25 years. Um, on some measures, fewer home sales now than at the worst period of the financial crisis, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, affordability is the worst it's been in 40 years. And so if you're trying to buy a home, it's been terrible. And I think that lower mortgage rates and could sort of get people to, first, it helps affordability. But also, if you are looking, if you have a low mortgage rate but are looking to move, well, maybe mortgage rates in the sixes, even though it'd be a higher mortgage rate, maybe that's enough to get you out of your home, willing to make that move for a better job, for family reasons, what have you, and just sort of make the market more functional again. And I think that would sort of make people feel better, even if it's, you know, maybe not as hot of a housing market as it was in the past. You call it dysfunctional. Does that lead then to volatility or unpredictability? Is that what makes this so hard? Definitely. I mean, because you had when COVID hit, sort of it looked like the housing market might crash again. And then by the end of 2020 into 2021, we had 6 million existing home sales, which is about as high as it ever gets. And then right now we have existing home sales a little bit below 4 million. So that's a 30, 35% decline. And that's really tough if you're just a homeowner or someone looking to buy a home. But it's also terrible if you're a realtor or someone who's a home decorator or mover or a loan originator. It just, you went from a boom to a bust and people are losing jobs. And it's just very uncertain about what the next three months look like, let alone the next year because there has been so much volatility in the housing market and mortgage rates. So I think a period of stability with maybe mortgage rates in the sixes would feel great compared to what it's been like the past few years, the roller coaster. But what are the signs that tell you a slow growth environment or at least a stable, a more stable environment is on the way? Well, so growth is looking right now in the fourth quarter about 2%, which is down from five in Q3. Um, so that's two is sort of normal, that the kind of growth we had in the 2010s. Uh, again, energy prices have already come down. Oil prices are probably as low as they're going to get outside of recession, just because we see that producers tend to want to cut back when prices get much lower. Um, and now with the inflation data we've gotten in recent months and some tea leaves from the Federal Reserve, it looks like they're going to be cutting rates as early, potentially as March of next year. 
and you're seeing that the bond market's responding to that, mortgage rates have dropped from 8% down to 7.2% or so. So there's reason I think we're finally going to make some progress on the interest rate side, um, which we haven't done, you know, since this recovery. So going forward, let's let's look toward the first quarter of 2024. You are saying that we are expecting an economic slowdown. That is something that is going to give the consumer more confidence, or will they just be more satisfied with a more stable environment? I think they want both right now. I think just stability is what people want. Lower prices, stable prices are what people want. Lower interest rates. The the inflation's been bad. The unpredictability's been bad. The volatility's been bad. People just don't want to have to think about this stuff. I, I might because I like you know to talk to you about it, yeah. to write about it, to look at markets. But the average person just wants to know gas is going to be affordable and not move around too much. When I'm looking to buy or sell my home, I get a reasonable rate. They don't want to have to think about changes in all of this stuff all the time. And I think just to the extent that all of this volatility can be on the back burner, people can focus on their lives and other things, that would be a relief to consumers. And just as an aside, we've been talking here on Bloomberg about the disconnect between the consumer sentiment and the actual economy itself. The economy is not bad right now, but the consumer sentiment doesn't reflect that. They feel like the economy is rough right now and making things harder for them. Yeah, people feel like they deserve the wages they have and the jobs they have today, but they want the prices they had in 2019. And that's that's fair. You know, people want lots of government services and low taxes. We all want to have our cake and eat it too. Sure. And I think when the pandemic hit, it, a lot of disruption occurred and there's a lot of uncertainty about what it would mean. We didn't know if we'd get vaccines or or how things would shake out and policymakers responded the way they did. And you could argue about the choices we made or the path we took to get here, but I think all things considered, it's not bad. Um, but we want to put that volatility and uncertainty behind us and just get back to normalcy. And I think we're getting there. So just uh, before we go, Connor, the volatility and the uncertainty is still sort of a residual effect then from the pandemic, which was, by the way, years ago, but we're still feeling that? Yeah, it's sort of even, uh, you know, auto automobile prices are still higher than I think they will be a year from now because we still have a lack of inventory, producers trying to catch up, supply chain things that are in the pipeline. Um, the housing market is still digesting everything that's happened. And then even if, you know, maybe this month versus last month is stable, people people don't adjust that quickly. And they're thinking about all the change that's occurred over the past three or four years. And it just takes a little longer to shake off all of the, the change that's happened. All right, Connor, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Thanks, Amy. Connor Sen is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and founder of Peachtree Creek Investments. And coming up, we'll look at a new poll. It's gauging Americans' trust, or lack of it, in science, research, and other traditional institutions. Stay with us. Much more still to come. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. A recent Pew poll showed Americans' trust in scientists fell during the pandemic years. More than a quarter of Americans surveyed say they are distrustful enough of scientists that they don't believe they'll act in the public's best interests. Want to get more on this now? Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faye Flam, host of the Follow the Science podcast, joins me now. And Faye, we talked about this before, but let's get into it a little bit deeper. How did this come to fruition during the pandemic? Well, I think that it has to do with the type of science that people were paying attention to during the pandemic. And that was science, medical science that was really done on the fly, as well as public health, um, which mixes a lot of judgment calls and values into scientific ideas. And is that what we experienced then? There were more suppositions and more hypotheses than actual scientific facts? I think that was part of it. I think scientists uh, and people in public health weren't always clear on on what was a judgment call or a decision to, say, do everything possible for a period of time to avoid spreading COVID. That was just a decision that was made in a lot of places, that we would do everything possible, including locking down our cities. But it wasn't a purely scientific decision. Science can tell you how to achieve that, but it can't necessarily tell you that that's the goal we should have set for ourselves. Yeah, there was a lot of debate, I remember, between wearing masks, don't wear masks. At at the very beginning, in March of 2020, there was a whole thing about don't wear masks, it's not going to help. And then, well, and it was, yeah, it was worse than that, because I think that that what the real flip flop that was that was really damaging to um, to to public opinion was the flip-flop on whether we should even worry about this at all. You know, there was a period of time when it was coming from the public health community, not from Donald Trump. You know, the don't panic, don't worry, the flu is worse. We were hearing that all through January and February from the public health community. And now they say, oh, no, that was Donald Trump. But if you look back at what people are saying, it wasn't. They flip-flopped from telling us not to worry to very quickly turning around saying, yes, worry and stay home and wear a mask. Now, were there any indications before the pandemic that trust in scientists and science was starting to falter, starting to wane? Maybe. I mean, I don't consider that necessarily a problem because I have interactions with scientists almost every day. And I don't think that as individuals, they're any more or less trustworthy than anybody else. They're just human. They're people that have a job to do. And some people are extremely honest and some people are less so. But what makes science trustworthy is the methods of science that create a a reliable body of knowledge. It's not that the individual scientists are necessarily without conflicts of interest or that they don't get things wrong or that they don't get sometimes stuck on their own wrong ideas. So how can the trust be rebuilt? I think that the big problem isn't necessarily that people don't have a a kind of a blanket blind trust in scientists. They should ask if a scientist says something, you should ask why, what's your evidence? What, what makes you say that? And why do scientists, um, other scientists disagree with you? I think that's legitimate. I think what we're seeing though, is the growth of a kind of an irrational paranoia where people have a sort of knee-jerk distrust of the whole thing, of everything that, that scientists have learned. And so I think there's a kind of a, a, a knee-jerk reaction in the opposite way that people are feeling so disillusioned that they 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 assume that 
if there was a clinical trial that showed a vaccine worked well, then they just don't believe it, that there's no amount of evidence that will convince them. And we are talking to Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faye Flam about Americans' trust in science and what scientists can do to regain that trust. I was thinking also, Faye, about the issue of vaccines. You just mentioned it, particularly the COVID vaccine. There are a lot of people to this day who will not get it. But that's not new. There have been debates over vaccinating kids for decades Does this distrust of science date back to that, or is that something else? Is that embedded somewhere else? It's connected. I mean, there's trust in science, and then there's trust in doctors um, to to recommend the right medications. I mean, you're talking about getting an injection, and and it does take a certain amount of trust when you're healthy to say, okay, I'm going to let my doctor um, inject me with this. And so I think a lot of people have also been swayed by the fact that there are people who call themselves scientists and who even have scientific degrees who are on the anti-vaxxer side. And so it may not be a matter of just getting people to trust science, but getting people to think critically about what to trust and why. Okay, so when we go back and review what scientists were saying during the pandemic, and when we ask why they weren't more clear or why they were flip-flopping, Their reply is often that they simply didn't know at the time. This was all very new. So how can they give us proper guidance if they didn't know? I think that you just have to play the long game in any area of science. And that means if you don't know, you have to admit you don't know. And then you have to say why you're making an educated guess on one side or the other and why you think things are going to go a certain way or why you think you should err on the side of caution when you don't know. But I think public health has a history of sometimes um, not being totally honest about their uncertainty because there's a sense of, you know, we have to get people to do this and say, you know, the ends justify the means. So we have to lie a little bit to get people to do the right thing. We'll do it. And I think that's a real difference between public health and just about any other area of science where where part of the game is to recognize where you don't know things and 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 measure your uncertainty make sure that you understand your margin of error i just want to go back to something you just said you're not accusing them of lying you're not saying that they lied well you know i did a podcast episode with with a uh, peter sandman who's a um, an expert in risk communication and and the the title was why I uh, public health officials sometimes lie. And Peter Sandman talked about what he calls the noble lie, the idea that, well, you sometimes, you know, people think they're lying for the greater good. And he had some very good examples of places where it looked like that's what was happening, that people in public health were actually bending the truth or telling half-truths as a way to try to push people or nudge people to do what they thought was the right thing. Then how could they ever rebuild trust if they lied? That's a good question. I mean, Sandman, his point was that this is a bad strategy. It's a bad strategy that these, you know, problems tend to be long term, and you you wear out your trust in a in a really bad way when you do try to to tell half truths or pretend you know what you're talking about when you don't. That that is a problem. And so the other thing is, of course, that scientists often just get things wrong because they're human and that things get hashed out. So it's okay to be distrustful of individual scientific claims. We should be. But when you have this, you know, body of evidence and and clinical trials and 
um, you know, I guess expert opinion that's informed by a lot of evidence, then at some point you kind of have to, it's, it's paranoid to think that that's all been somehow manufactured. It becomes crazy not to believe it. Well, to that end, it's not just science, right? Trust in many institutions has fallen. Yes, that's true. That's true. And I think scientists actually um, got higher marks for trust than other institutions, whether they, you know, whether they are more trustworthy. I think there is a little more emphasis in the press on on exposing conflicts of interest among scientists. And I think that's not a bad thing. I think it's that when when people hear about a new study, it's good to inform people that there might be some conflicts of interest among the scientists making that claim. All right. Thank you, Faye, for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faye Flam, host of Follow the Science podcast. And don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. For the past couple of years, the U.S. economy has shown resilience revolving around demand for services. That started to cool off this year. Then came Barbie and Oppenheimer and Taylor Swift. But even Taylor Swift and Barbie combined can't maintain that momentum. And spending on recreation services is dropping again. Let's talk about it with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Levin, who focuses on markets and economics. Uh, John, let's start with the past two years and the demand for services. Was that the result of a pandemic shutdown or is that an oversimplification? Yeah, kind of, sort of. I I mean, I think the story of the resilience of the economy over the past two years, even in the face of these extraordinary Fed hikes, was really about that pent-up demand to a certain extent uh, for services, and really the the mean reversion of demand for services, right? So, uh, you know, even after we stopped buying new refrigerators and washing machines and all this stuff, we had this upward trajectory in the economy overall, because the services economy is such a big part of what we do here in the in the United States. And it was steadily uh, mean reverting, meaning going up, up, up as uh, little by little, we started going back to concerts, we started going back to movie theaters. Uh, and in a big way, uh, we started going back to uh, live sports. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that it was uh, it, it, it was a confluence of factors, but what what we really need to understand is it's true that uh, the services economy did a lot of the work uh, in keeping us out of a recession over the past two years. Why is the demand for services waning now? Is it just balancing it out? Yeah, so I I, I sort of think uh, that what we saw w- was a little bit of a double dip, right? So uh, we had this big recovery, you might call it a mean a mean reversion, and then uh, sort of early 2023 demand for these services, especially recreation services, did start to wane. But in uh, around summertime, we had this kind of special confluence of factors uh, that gave us a little bit of a sugar high. 
We had uh, the incredible uh, monarch marketing uh, phenomenon that was the Barbie movie. <laughs> we had uh, Taylor Swift on tour. And re remember, Beyonce was also on tour uh, earlier in the year. And we had this, uh, you know, in the the backdrop was this continuing moderation, uh, th this continuing uh, mean reversion. But now in terms of like the quantities of uh, recreation services that we're consuming, like adjusting for inflation, we have returned to 2019 levels. So there is nowhere uh, to go uh, just in terms of like pure mean reversion. We can't expect that to, uh, you know, be like an, an, an automatic uh, uh, boost to the numbers going forward, and uh, Taylor's tour uh, moved on from the uh, the United States of America. The Barbie phenomenon uh, is over, and so uh, you know we're we're back into this sort of uh, services, maybe not double dip, but double normal normalization as it were. So how much of an impact was it? Are you able to measure that? I mean, you call it a sugar high, but it was a sugar high that was needed at the time, right? Yeah, exactly. Some of this was expected and uh and, and some of it was, some of it was not to be expected. Um so how much of this was a meaningful change? Uh, so recreation services really plunged it during the uh, during the pandemic, and little by little they uh, they returned to baseline, adjusting for inflation. Movie theater uh, consumption is still like way, way, way uh, below where it was. Uh, pre-pandemic in 2019, uh, and we we sort of got back to uh, pre-pandemic levels for like a month or two during the Barbie and Oppenheimer phenomenon, but that is now just out out of the equation. It really shows us that like it was just a special thing about those particular films. Uh, if you look at uh, live entertainment excluding sports that's the taylor swift phenomenon you know like we never really got above the uh the pre-pandemic norms so you know like uh, taylor and beyonce helped us get back to uh what you would have expected in in 2019 but we never really got beyond their uh adjusting for inflation right of course there were people were paying these extraordinary prices to go to these events and so that is a little bit of of, of what you see in the headline figures and then the last thing that i i like to underscore here is there is only one area that has seen a meaningful uh, kind of structural change in the past two years, and that is live sports. Uh, for whatever reason, even adjusting for inflation, we Americans are just like way more into live sports right now than we were before the pandemic. And they, like the example um, that I tend to go to is just baseball. Baseball has made some really meaningful changes uh, to speed up the game and thing, things like that uh, and bring people back into those stadiums. So like that's an example of, uh, you know, uh, a successful strategy. I think in college sports, specifically college football, they also did some strategic things like, you know, introducing more alcohol into the <laughs> into the stadiums, and that has uh, and that has really really helped. 
But um, yeah, I want to come back to what what I said before, like spectator sports aside, we've normalized and, uh, and and we're back to where we were before the pandemic. And there just isn't a lot of impulse left in that uh, recreation services. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Levin about how Taylor Swift helped give the U.S. economy a second wind when it was needed. But you also say in your column, John, uh, now spending on recreation services is ebbing anew and central bankers should be thrilled. Why? Right. Well, so the idea is that uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell has been very focused on the service sector uh, as a goal that he saw as necessary to tame inflation. The way he saw it, uh, you know, like to a certain extent, central banks can't really control goods prices. A lot of them are, are imported and there's only so much that a central bank can do. But services prices in particular are set domestically. They're heavily sensitive to uh, wages uh, and, and so forth. And so there was a belief that if you were going to put the inflation genie back in the bottle, you as, you know, Fed Chair Jerome Powell uh, needed to cool off some of this heat in the service sector. What he was looking for was a cooling in this space, not a collapse. Uh, And right now, that's what he's getting as services companies start to worry a little bit more about their bottom line, that they might start to lay off a few workers, and that that could become a vicious cycle in the economy. Uh, but for now, it feels like good news, and it doesn't feel like uh, like we're in that sort of vicious cycle. And before we let you go, John, there was an argument that spending habits were changed forever because of and after the pandemic shutdown. And you make the argument that these numbers show a shift closer to the norm and that spending habits have not been changed forever. They they may have been tweaked a bit, but it's not a complete and whole change. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so there was this, this argument that people's attitudes towards spending had had sort of changed coming out of the, the pandemic that, um, you know, we'd bought all the refrigerators that we needed for the for, for the foreseeable future. And what we desperately needed were experiences. And it was like, no, not really. If you adjust for, for inflation, our habits never really changed that that much. It's just that the uh, the um, the ticket price had had changed yep. so much. So the quantities of uh, in which we're consuming these things uh, haven't really moved versus 2019. We've normalized. We're back to what you would expect, uh, and hopefully we stay there. I think that's what Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell hopes, uh, and I think that's what we should expect going forward. Jonathan Levin is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist with a focus on markets and economics. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. You should expect to be pampered when you dine at high-end restaurants. But now some restaurants are taking that luxury a step beyond a culinary destination or a gastronomic delight. You could actually make the world better through the intersection of science and cuisine. Let's talk about this. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Howard Chuiwan covers culture and business and joins me now. So how does this work? What's the concept? This particular expansion that we're writing about was this fancy, really spectacular restaurant in Copenhagen called Alchemist. Uh, 
and they already have very sort of space age food and all of that and 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 uh, uh and as well as a huge visual theater where you walk into the uh, several dining rooms and the and and the entire whole forests are sort of projected onto the walls and you have this amazing experience already so what the chef is doing is starting a little side project which is going to explore how to make turn seaweed into new proteins and things like that. So, so there's an entire participation of the clientele and like, oh, the chef is going off this new adventure and trying to create new kinds of food for the world. So, uh, and it's not exactly a, a, a fresh approach because these things have been done. One of the, one of his mentors was the Spanish chef, uh, Ferran Adria, who had very verter what they called molecular gastronomy several years back. And they were sort of, it was all very strange, strangely shaped things that were explosively delicious once you put them in your mouth. But they were all sort of scientifically crafted and they thought, oh, all this chemistry is going to be wonderful. So all of these come together as a business so they're not necessarily working to just become niche and stand out from the crowd, although that's part of it. They're actually yes. looking to make a difference in the industry. Yes, exactly. Uh, and that's true for uh, alchemists. And its rival across Copenhagen is, is a much more famous restaurant because it's more established, named Noma. They have, they've had this fermentation lab for several years now, and they've created several products out of it. So they're expanding the range of the restaurant beyond just the food they serve during dinner time. You know, owning and running a restaurant is already very expensive. It's very exhausting. A lot of places don't make it. But you add a laboratory layer to that approach, and it seems near impossible. Are they setting themselves up for a challenge that might be hard to, to match? What's interesting is that there are investors who are interested in this. Uh, Alchemist has a couple of very uh, well-to-do uh, uh, Danish investors. Uh, Noma has a very, very quiet but... Uh, but very activist sort of, you know, investor that helps along with all their projects. So people are see this as investment opportunities, as a way of sort of expanding uh, the range of restaurants and perhaps making a difference as well. So where do you see this trend going, or is it even fair to call it a trend? It's a, it's it's been a sort of trend for several years now. Uh, I think you know the. The higher-end restaurants with lots of investors who want to see the, to see that there's this interesting concept that a restaurant starts with, whether or not it can be expanded, and uh, and whether or not there are commercial possibilities for what they're doing. I think because there there are there's prestige and a name attached to it, there is so much potential for for more business in the future. So I think. People are watching, especially the high-end restaurants, who don't want to go and, and, and sort of franchise themselves in Vegas or something like that, but instead to go and do something different that will that will actually make a a real statement about what how they see the world and maybe even, you know, make some money. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Howard Chui won. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We're produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are just ahead. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.